if you start with Karen Rose's unbelievable Mother Maybelle Carter essay, you know, she got out there and she just did what needed to be done because she didn't want anybody getting in her way. Mm. Right. And I love the image that starts it of these little kids at a campfire singing those songs, not understanding even where they come from. And then towards the end of the essay, there's Maybelle who's come up with this amazing way of playing the guitar. But what's she doing? She's driving a station wagon, smoking cigarettes, hauling into the night because she's got a, she's got a, a, a band to promote shows to play, a future to secure, and damn it, she's going to go do it. Welcome to the Female Entrepreneur Musician Podcast with Bree Noble. Bree is a musician, entrepreneur, speaker, and founder of Women of Substance Music Radio and Podcast. Bree's interviews with successful female musicians and industry pros are both inspirational and informational. She also answers your questions about the music business. Bree is on a mission to help you create great music, connect with your fans, and grow your business, and to truly become a female entrepreneur musician. You are tuned into the Female Entrepreneur Musician Podcast, where we talk about making great music, connecting with your audience, and growing your business. And my name is Bree Noble, and I'm excited today to be focusing on a subject that's more on the making great music and connecting with your audience than the growing your business side, which if you come to this show often, you know I'm a lot about building your musician business. But today, I want to inspire you guys with some information about a book that I think all of you need to read. Recently, a friend of mine, Louis Vajour, shout out to Louis out there, uh, introduced me to a writer, a music critic, an artist developer named Holly Gleason, who he had interviewed for a publication, talking about her new book, It's called Woman Walk the Line, and I'm not going to spoil any of the surprises that come up in this interview about how this book was created and what it is. So we're going to get straight to the interview, but first I just want to remind you about our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash femmusician if you'd like to show your support of the show and help us pay to create this show, all the things that go on in the background, the hosting, the assistance that helped me put it together then go to patreon.com slash femmusician and become a patron. Of course, we've got lots of cool rewards that you can receive from being a patron. Now, let me introduce you to my guest, Holly Gleason. Holly Gleason embodies the 21st century music industry professional, an authentic music critic, academic, artist development consultant, and occasional songwriter. Writing for the Miami Herald, the Cleveland Plain Dealer, and Billboard, later Rolling Stone, musician, Cream, she became a definitive voice covering American roots music of the late 80s and early 90s. The head of media and artist development at Sony Nashville, the founder of boutique media strategy and artist development firm Joe's Garage, and writer for No Depression, The Oxford American, Playboy, Paste, and The East Nashvillian. Now in private practice, working with acts from longtime client Kenny Chesney to the Lumineers, Leanne Womack's three-time Grammy nominee, The Way I'm Livin', Gleason is the creator and editor, as well as contributor, 
to Woman Walk the Line, How the Women of Music Changed Our Lives, from the University of Texas Press. A resident of Nashville, Tennessee, she is a firm believer that songs can make all the difference in people's lives. Here's my interview with Holly Gleason. So that's a little bit of information about Holly Gleason. So Holly, is there anything about you that's maybe a little bit unique, a little bit different, more personal you want to share that's not in your bio? I guess the most interesting thing about me is that um, in no way, shape, or form should I be doing anything that I'm doing. (laughs) That is interesting. Yeah. I mean, I was raised to be a corporate housewife. Ah, Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. And there is no prototype or paradigm or template or even secret pirate map in a bottle to go from where I was in Cleveland, Ohio to where I am now. Oh my goodness. You've got me intrigued. Okay. So I need to find out what is the story? How did you, you know, what's your musical background and how in the world did you end up working in the music industry the way that you do? I um, grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, playing competitive golf. I did a lot of interviews and had my picture in the paper a lot as a kid. I cracked my hand up. I met the lead singer of the Prairie League who said, you should write about music. I play nothing. Um, I hum. And um, I probably had the fiercest record collection on the east side of Cleveland from about the seventh grade on And I loved music so much that when I kidnapped Vince Gill, who was in Pure Prairie League, and interviewed him, he said, you should write about music. And I said, oh, no one will take take me serious. I'm a 17-year-old girl. And he said, I've done a lot of interviews, and you're really good, and you really ought to think about it. And when I found out I wasn't going to be able to play golf competitively, I, I thought about what Vince said and thought, well, okay. I mean, what's the worst thing that can happen? The one thing I will say for anybody listening is I did not go forward thinking I was all that and I had all the answers and I had read a lot of music criticism and I was a big student of the game. And I worked really hard to be good enough at a professional level. So I wasn't just a cocky 17-year-old kid. But by the time I was a sophomore in college, I was writing for the Miami Herald. Wow. So were you always a good writer? Because I read your piece about, um, about Troy Gentry and it's, it's amazing. It's a really interesting writing style and it's very compelling and, um, not, it's not a common writing style. I think did, did you always have a knack for that? When I was playing golf, I was doing writing about golf, about being a kid playing golf, about, competitive thinking about some of the tournament experiences I was having. In 1979, I wrote the lead story for the U.S. amateur, men's amateur program. Mm. So I just was given a gift. Wow. You know, I wish I could say I'm so awesome. I'm not. You know, God gave me a talent and I had the good sense to go, gosh, if I'm able to do this, I should really pay attention and work hard and try to actually be really good at it. Mm. So how did you break into that, the music side of the the writing and, and criticism and all that? When I, um, when I got to college, I needed 
suddenly to pay for school. And I started writing and I realized that I would get to better artists if I wrote for better publications. Mm. So I started out writing for fanzines, writing for alternative weeklies. Um, I always joke, I wrote for the weekly news in Miami, which was the gay publication. And I wrote for black Miami weekly, which is the black publication. (laughs) I'm neither. (laughs) And, but I think if you, if you come proper, and you try to consider who is the audience I'm writing for, and you honor the reader, and, and you know how to ask good questions, there's usually a way to write for somebody. And then you just keep building from there. And so I traded up, and the Miami Herald needed a country writer. Um, they had rejected my rock clips, my pop clips, my black clips, my punk clips. I just could not get traction. And then one day the phone rang and it was the editor of a man named Doug Adrianson, who I think in the book, who says, I hear you know about country music. (laughs) And I'm like, is this a joke? (laughs) You're the Miami Herald. But Florida is a state that has, you know, as many, and I use the term proudly, as many rednecks as they have um, uh, Kaya or Kalianta, um, I can't think of the name of the bands, but hot bands. So it it turned out that there was actually a place I could crawl into. And then when I got in there, it turned out it was a pretty compelling body of artists and music and songs and history to write about. Mm, Absolutely. It's such a, it's such a traditionally American style. Um, Did you always like country or did you just grow to love it because of that job? Um, when you play golf in Cleveland, Ohio, and you want to get into bars when you're underage, you realize your best bet are the golf pros. And most of our golf pros from come from Kentucky and West Virginia. Mm. So I was in a lot of places I shouldn't have been <laughs> hearing bands that leaned country. There was Deadly Ernest and the Honky Tonk Heroes, the Buckeye Biscuit Band, Wild Horses, which was really more of a stone-leaning thing. And being Cleveland, it was a place where you might hear Waylon Jennings next to Bobby Womack, next to Ry Cooter. So my country was a little bit more um, universal, not so one little stripe. And I think that's one of the things with the book that you can tell is you know, Linda Ronstadt and Patty Griffin and Rihanna Giddens and Hazel Dickens and Loretta Lynn. Yeah. It's all country. When I looked at that list, I was like, Patty Griffin. Like, I wasn't sure that I thought of her as country, but I love, I mean, there is this, this common feeling to me about the people that you chose that in my mind necessarily weren't like pigeonholed as country, but there's definitely that, that country roots in there and it's funny too because i think where you stand on the paradigm of being 
a music fan or a music lover when I called Grace Potter and said, here's a chance for your parents to feel good about all the money they spent on your college education. <laughs> and she laughed and she said, well, you know, and I said, no, just like, who would it be? Who shaped you, your life, your music, who really had that impact on you? And I said, if it doesn't work, if you tell me it's Tina Turner, you know, we'll talk about something else. And she said, well, no, you know, it's Linda Ronstadt. Do you think she's country? And I said, well, do you think she's country? Because mm. that's part of it, too. It's how do you see it? And she said, yeah, I mean, of course I do. And so that's how we came to have Grace Potter write about Linda Ronstadt. That's really cool. I was wondering how she ended up in there. Um, so I have known Grace Potter since she was, I think, 22 years old. Oh, she's awesome. I love her music. She's really good. She's really good. So how did you get into the artist development side? I, I was a music critic. Then I ran, um, I was the features editor at Hits Magazine or hitsdailydouble.com in today's world, which is the inside the Beltway music trade. They moved me to Nashville to become um, a Nashville bureau chief. I was offered a job at a record company to run their media and artist development department. And it was a fascinating time because when you start to see how narrative informs every aspect of who an artist is, and every aspect of who an artist is really drives the media. Um, it really intrigued me. So for a number of years, I owned a company called Joe's Garage. And we did media relations and artist development. But to do artist development well, you really have to concentrate on it. So I moved away from the day-in, day-out, frontline PR stuff to um, really focusing on how do we take what this artist or this music is? How do we tell it as compellingly as possible? What is the strategy to best build a longevity for both the artist and whatever piece of music we're trying to promote? Mm, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, artist development and, and PR is really just telling a story. And obviously, you know how to tell stories and you probably know how to get you know, with, with your interview skills, you know how to get out of the artist which, what you want in order to, you know, make them open up anyway, to be able to know what you want to focus on and promote that's really going to resonate with people. Sure. Well, it's also recognizing pictures are part of it. Video content is part of it. I think too many people, not to get too far afield, think that social media is telling someone what there is to buy mm. or it's what I had for lunch. <laughs> and to me, you know, one is just a straight pimp and the other thing is sort of vanity gone sideways. Mm. You know, why do you matter? What is your truth? What are you offering somebody other than your fantastic juicy new lip gloss? Mm. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, social media, so many artists, I see them just like, buy my album, buy my album, listen to my music. Yeah, or tickets on sale today. Mm -hmm. like, okay, we got it. And I think people do want to know 
that the tickets are on sale so they can go get the best possible seats. Right. Right. But I think there, there's more to it than that. And I find, and I've worked with a lot of artists over the years who mean something, you know, when you think about a Patty Loveless or Leanne Womack, those songs that they've recorded and that art that they make, it's mattered, you know, and people still, whether they have records or not, you know, you know that when you hear Patty Loveless, you're hearing the soul of the mountains. You mm. really are. You know, when you hear um, Leanne Womack, you're hearing probably the finest distillation of real hardcore country music there is. And that comes from, you know, kind of how you create a culture around yourself. And you can still tweet about what you had for lunch. <laughs> Someone probably cares, but yeah, it's, it's, it's getting them. I always think of it as like the fan discovery journey. Like you, you can't just say tickets on sale. No one's going to care. First you have to make them care and then they'll care about the tickets. Yeah, maybe. And, and also, you know, one of my frustrations as, as a young fan, the thing that, that qualifies me is I was voracious. I wanted to know everything there was to know about the artists that I loved. I wanted to have a sense of what they were doing, why it mattered. Um, why did it matter to me? What was mm. it making me feel? Um, and how do I, how do I connect those dots in a way that gave me a larger connection to the people around me? Yeah. And that's what and I yes, love. I really was that geeky. <laughs> <laughs> no, I get it. Like real fans, I think are that geeky. And that's what I love about this, this project, the women walk the line is you're really trying to get the heart of why, get to the heart of why these artists matter and why I should care and <clears throat> really connect them to listeners way more than just their music. So can you tell us like what gave you the idea to do this and how did you recruit all these writers? Um, I, I was going, um, to get my master's in writing. Cause I, again, I said, you know, you want to, if you're given a gift, honor your gift. So mm -hmm. I was getting my master's at Spalding university up in Louisville. And I had been under contract to write a book about Emmy Lou Harris for the university of Texas press. And they very generously, when I got out, I, I called my acquiring editor, David Manconi and said, Hey, I know you're waiting for this book. And he goes, yeah, we were trying to figure out if we could get it in the next cycle. And I said, well, there's something else I want to do. I think there's so many great women writers who either by virtue of life and job and what they do, or the fact that the wells in publications are shrinking, they're not getting to write long form, and they're not getting to consider on a personal basis what music means to them. And I hate the idea that some of these voices, I exist pre-internet. If you Google me, you have no idea how much I wrote. But for a couple of years in the 80s, I was probably one of the most published women in America covering music. Wow. And I don't really exist. And there are other women like that, or they've risen through the ranks and they're editors and you're not reading them. And I said, I don't want those voices lost to the ages. Like they're important voices. Ronnie Lundy, who writes about Hazel Dickens, she won the James Beard Award, the top James Beard Award, mm. for a book she wrote called Fiddles 
about Appalachian food sources. Amazing and crazy. And she hasn't written about music in 25, 30 years. When I was coming up as a baby rock critic, she set the bar. Like, I just wanted to be Ronnie Lundy. Right. <laughs> and I called her and I said, hey, would you do this? And I said, you know, who do you think you'd want to do? And she said, well, Hazel Dickens, which to me was terrific because I knew she could kill that. And I said, well, what's, you know, and she said, I was, you know, as a young woman in the 70s trying to find my place in the world. And there were very definite ideas about what a woman was. She created this dynamic that was what it really, I got to be free and I got to be strong and I got to be independent. And I'm like, write it. You know, that's all I need to know. So the book comes from that. And then the other piece of where the book comes from, I teach music criticism at MTSU. And it's really disheartening to walk into a class of music business majors, junior, senior year. And you'll ask them who their favorite artist is, and they look at you. And then when you ask them why they are, they can't tell you. And in this reductionistic, social media grunting, 400-word maximum, there's no way for people to develop any kind of discernment or articulation of what sets things apart. Mm. So to me, for art to have longevity, we have to get people to start facing forward so they're consuming it in a way that matters. It's not just the thing you're sort of listening to in the background or it's tattoos, this is my first job or this is my first apartment. It really has some substance for you and it allows the artist to have some dimensionality. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And that is, that is hard to do <laughs> like in our 400-word social media atmosphere. How did you choose? Like, did you choose the writers and let them choose who they were going to write about? Or did you kind of want a certain set of people written about and then found the people that would be willing to write them? It was two columns. One column was all the women artists that I thought should be in the book. The other column was a list of women writers that I either knew or figured I knew someone who could get me to. Some of them were not obvious suspects. Um, Let's see. Carolyn Randall Williams is the poet in residence at Fisk University here. Mm. She did Rhiannon Giddens. She's not somebody I might have gone to when I was talking to Alice Randall, who's her mother, who wrote The Wind Done Gone. It's a New York Times bestseller. She's a um, number one songwriter. She wrote a song called X's and O's that I think Mm. has been played over 3 million times. (laughs) Um, She's she's a a house fellow over at Vanderbilt. She ran a house for them for years. Um, I was explaining I was having a hard time finding millennials that could write at a high enough level because they were going to have to be in a book with Ronnie Lundy. And Mm. I'd never want anybody to look like, oh, they did really good for a kid, (laughs) right? When I played golf, my dad had a very hard firm rule with me. When I played in my first woman's state amateur, I was 12. And he said to me, if you put your tee in the ground, honey, you are going to be a competitor for the Ohio State Women's Open. Mm. You're not a kid in a golf tournament. Mm. And if you do really badly, 
I don't want to hear you whining to some journalist after the round that you're just a kid. Do we have a deal? <laughs> and I said, yeah, you know, because you're a kid and you want to win. Go team. <laughs> but I think that there's, there's a lot to be said for set the bar and then have everybody clear it. So when I was saying to Alice, you know, I, I need some more younger writers. She said, well, do you want to see if Caroline has something? And I was like, that would be amazing. And, you know, we talked and she said, well, I think I'd like to do Rhiannon Giddens. I think I have a story. And um, she gave me a real sense of who I am as a, as a woman and, and as a creative being. And, and I said, okay, you know, I didn't want to tell her too much because she's a poet. Mm. And I was so curious about what she was going to do with her story. And, you know, it's, it's a pretty amazing story. It's on a movie set with Denzel Washington. Wow. In Louisiana. Yeah. It's, and that's the beauty of this. These women take you to a lot of places you couldn't get to otherwise. You know, I mean, Roseanne Cash, when I went to June Carter Cash's funeral and Roseanne gave that eulogy, I remember thinking, oh, God, I hate that this stops here. Because uh. it was such an unbelievable eulogy. So when I had the green light from the University of Texas Press, the first thing I did was email Rose and she said, oh my gosh, I'm trying to get a record finished. And, and, you know, I didn't know how to ask her right off the top of the bat, can I have your eulogy? But when I went back and said, no, what I really wanted was your remarks from the funeral when June Carter died because they killed me. And she said, oh, if that's what you want, sure. You know, mm -hmm. A lot of people were in that room, but we're all people that are part of an extended community. And what she says about humanity and love and who you are, you know, welcome to a really beautiful portrait of who we all could aspire to be. Taylor yeah. Swift, when I reached out to her people, I thought she was going to do Emmy Lou Harris because they have done a bunch of benefits together. And I figured, you know, how Taylor navigates a lot of things feels very Emmy to me. And they came back and they said, she's got this other thing she wrote and we think this is the better fit. And she was 17 years old. She was on the verge of, I think, releasing her second album. She was not the ubiquitous Taylor Swift. Hmm. Um, and she considers Brenda Lee, who in her day was about the biggest thing there was. So there she is on the precipice, right, looking at the woman who did it, and you just get this sense of, wow, so that's what it looked like to her. Nobody else could have written that moment. Oh, yeah. Nobody, I, thought, I thought that was a really interesting choice, and, and that makes a lot of sense now that you explain that. Yeah, and it was amazing because they had the instincts. You know, I don't know whether Taylor picked it or somebody, you know, her mom is very involved. I don't know who thought to do that, but boy, I said, send it over and I opened it up and my jaw just hit my computer because mm -hmm. it was more perfect than anything I could have asked for. Wow. Wow. So do you think that for all these women that are profiled in this book, do you think that it was harder, you know, for them, like, especially a lot of them are earlier on in the, the years of, of music and country music. Do you think it was harder for them as women? to make it in the music industry than it is today? Or do you think it's continually hard for women? I think it's continually hard. Honestly, um, 
I always like to say step up, step back. If you start with Karen Rose's unbelievable Mother Maybelle Carter essay, you know, she got out there and she just did what needed to be done because she didn't want anybody getting in her way. Mm. Right. And I love the image that starts it of these little kids at a campfire singing those songs not understanding even where they come from. And then towards the end of the essay, there's Maybelle who's come up with this amazing way of playing the guitar. But what's she doing? She's driving a station wagon, smoking cigarettes, hauling into the night because she's got a she's got a, a, a band to promote, shows to play, a future to secure, and damn it, she's gonna go do it. Mm. So You know, I think it's always hard for women. One thing I always say, boys can put on a on a ball cap and go to a radio station to a visit. Girls got to have two hours of hair and makeup. (laughs) It's true. And if you think that they're not judged, everybody expects all female artists to be the fantasy all the time. Mm. You know, I remember I was very close to Tammy Wynette and I remember she had the most beautiful allure. Um tracksuits before there was juicy couture and i asked her about it i said you've got all these really pretty matching and she said well honey if i'm taking the garbage to the curb and one of those tour buses fall up comes up and that's the only time they're ever going to see me she's i don't want to let the fans down oh yeah and she's got to be in full makeup and all that just to go out to take out the trash probably (laughs) right so you know it's it's harder that way i think it's harder in that you know we to get through some of the gatekeeping i think you have to sort of be that girl i joke promo men want to date but Mm. there's also a freedom that comes with that because i think the girls are able because people are not expecting them to turn into a kenny chesney stadium sized headliner um they can sing tougher things they can sing bigger truths they can capture moments that men wouldn't notice And by doing that, I think they become a truer representation of the gender. It's interesting. I, a man copy edited for me in Florida before I turned the book in. And he was the punk god of South Florida. And everybody down there knows him. And he did it to be nice because I'm dyslexic. I'm really badly dyslexic. And, you know, he called me about halfway through and he goes, I got to tell you, I'm really enjoying this book. And for as much as, you know, we talk about men and women being so different, he goes, reading this book, all the things that don't always make sense, make sense. Like, I get how and why it works. Mm. So do you think, do you think that people, number one, do you think that men can enjoy this book as much as women or women will enjoy it more? And do you think that you have to be a a lover of country music to enjoy this book? No, I think that country music is the least of it. Mm. You know, I think Exine from X, Exine Cervenka, she was one of my blurbers. And one of the things that she said is, it's for city girls, it's for country girls, but it's really for anybody who's interested in life and the human condition. Mm. It's just through the lens of music. It's just through the lens of music. Right. right. It, it's basically the simplest way to explain it. 
I asked all of the writers, who is the artist, the female artist who changed your life? What was it about what you experienced via them or their music that really connected or moved you? And what was the shift? And out of that, you get a lot of people experiencing art, but experiencing art in a way that that transforms them. Mm. Yeah, I think for all the listeners of this show, absolutely. You don't have to be a country lover. I know all of you guys care about how art transforms you and you are out there transforming people with art. So I really recommend that you you listen to this. I mean, you listen to this interview and you go out there and you buy the book because I just, I think it's really going to be moving and transformative. So can you let us know, Holly, and thank you so much for coming on and and telling our listeners about the book, I just knew once I heard about it that it was going to be something that my audience would absolutely love. So can you tell them the best place to go and grab their copy? Um, there are two or three ways to get the book. Obviously, Amazon.com, click and send, you're on your way. Um, but I try to encourage people to go to their local bookstore you can go to IndieBound.com if you don't have one. If you don't have a dealer, let's get your habit started, Indie.com. <laughs> and you type in your zip code and they'll tell you where your local bookstores are. Um, you know, and it's, it's, it's a thing I encourage all the listeners, you know, if you've got some friends, pass it around because your favorite essay may be somebody else goes somewhere else and the discussions that people are having. I was at a, Loretta Lynn opening at the Country Music Hall of Fame and listening to Casey Musgraves and Brandy Clark talking about the book, it was fascinating because they're both very young, very bright, very incredible songwriters. And they were very fired up mm-hmm. about different essays. It was, it was neat. And I think that there's a lot of discussion, whether it's about the music or not, the story translates. The story translate and that's what I say you know who is your woman and how do you walk the line mm. love it thank you so much you guys all go out there and buy this book I think you're really going to be glad that you did now go out and make great music connect with your fans and grow your business female entrepreneur musician has been brought to you by femusician.com and femalemusicianacademy.com with editing by Jen Eads of 317 Sound Design and music by Stella Ronson.